The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Well, no chance of a quiet end to the week. It is a stunningly busy day on both the corporate and indeed on the macro front. So let's get you through the big headlines today. Japan's 10-year government bond yield rises to its highest level since September 2014. The yen and the Nikkei both whipsawing. This after the BOJ pledges greater flexibility on its yield curve control policy. Standard Chartered boosting its dividend and announcing a $1 billion buyback as first half net profit jumps 20% on the back of higher rates. We are going to speak to Andy Halford coming up next. He's the CFO. The European Central Bank, ECB, lifting rates for the ninth straight meeting, hiking by an expected, as expected, 25 basis points, back to highs not seen since 2001. The president of that institution, Christine Lagarde, echoing the Fed's Jerome Powell in remaining open on another increase. There is the possibility of a hike, there is the possibility of a pause. It's a decisive maybe, but you know, don't expect me to go one way or the other. As I said, the burden of proof is going to be the data. Intel shares jump almost 8% in extended trade as the chipmaker beats on the top and bottom line in the second quarter, driven by strong demand for PCs and issuing better than expected guidance. And now the CEO of Coots has had to step down as the NatWest debanking scandal snares another victim. We're going to break the UK lender's first half results in just under one hour's time. Right, huge news actually. And although some people were expecting something along those lines, I read a very good piece that said JP Morgan were expecting it. But look, the Bank of Japan has pledged to be more flexible in its yield curve control as it maintained its ultra low interest rates. The central bank left its short term rate target unchanged at negative 0.1%. Yes, negative 0.1%. And 0%. Uh, for its 10-year government bond. But, JP Ong, but it's the fact that there's going to be some flexibility up to 1% uh, on those yield curve controls. It's got everyone very, very excited. And the ramifications of this are huge, not just for Japan, but for all our viewers. Indeed, Steve. Good morning to you guys. And when you look at it on the surface, it almost seems you might be fooled to thinking that the Bank of Japan did nothing really by leaving things unchanged and also maintaining that yield curve control at plus minus half a percent. But again, if you dig closer, you'll see that the language matters as it always does with these central bank decisions. And that word flexibility, again, is the key word that everyone was zeroing in. The fact that they were not going to make it a hard rule to maintain that yield curve control, but actually keep it flexible, meaning it's a bit of a rule of thumb. In fact, you're seeing it actually play out and how some of these JGB yields are actually moving at the moment. Take a look at the 10-year, in fact, and you'll notice that it's comfortably above that half a percent cap, actually, at about 50.553% uh, uh, um, uh, at the moment. And again, perhaps markets actually testing to see if the Bank of Japan is indeed serious about letting a little bit of flexibility around this. In fact, you mentioned that 1%. What they're going to do now is allow for purchases of 10-year JGBs at about 1% in fixed market operations. And one of the things in the language also, and 
why they explained they were going to do this is because they said that strictly capping long-term yields could actually affect market functions and introduce some unwanted distortions, which is why they said that maybe now is the time to introduce a little bit of flexibility. So without actually abandoning the yield curve control or, or widening the yield curve control um, get bands, actually, they've allowed some flexibility just to, uh, just to allow markets a little bit more breathing room and take a look at that breathing that's happening across some of these JGB yields at the moment. Now, we also want to take a look at how that's impacting the Japanese yen. And just look at this intraday. Leading up to the market, actually, we saw the yen weaken significantly past almost flirting with 141 against the greenback. But as that decision came down, you'll see that the yen took on some strength once again. It is now at 138 spot 64 against the greenback, looking quite strong with those yields actually pushing it up. Now, does this mean that the Bank of Japan will indeed begin to uh, perhaps a abandon its ultra-low and negative monetary rate policy? Well, the question will always hinge on inflation. Yes, we've seen inflation in Japan actually trend significantly higher as compared to its recent history. In fact, their June CPI coming in at about 3.3%. But keep in mind, the Bank of Japan did say that while they're expecting inflation to be elevated for 2023, they're still expecting that some of the um, expectations show some upside but is skewed to the downside actually in 2023 and could also ease in 2024. Keep in mind also the J Japanese government just a few days ago said that they're expecting inflation to ease in 2024 and also called on the Bank of Japan to act accordingly to make sure they can hit their target of 2%, which means if it does ease lower next year, they are expecting them to perhaps introduce some more loose monetary policy to support some of these inflationary goals. And just quickly, you'll see that Japanese yen, that stronger yen, also weighing on the Nikkei and the topics in today's session. And you'll see there's significant loss at least for some of these equity benchmarks out in Tokyo as the Bank of Japan introduces what seems like to be no movement, but again, the language of flexibility really dictating the theme for markets out in Tokyo. Steve, it's back to you. JP, thank you very much indeed. Look, I just want to just go through one or two of the ramifications of this before we get to our next guest as well. Because look, this isn't like other central banks, okay? This is a central bank that has kept ultra easy throughout all of what we've seen, despite the fact that the government estimates on inflation on a longer term basis, well, they went up a long while ago. They went up to circa 2.6% quite a while ago, whilst the BOJ was stalwartly hanging on to 1.8. And of course, 2% being the target. If they go up to 2%, as, uh, as is appearing to be the case, then that means it has to be the end of ultra easy to a certain degree. But what does that mean? Well, it means a, a country that has, and this is the difference as well, $3.92 trillion worth of JGBs, yeah? That's 52% of the JGBs are owned by, who do you think? The government. So there's some ramifications there. Two, the debt to GDP in this country is 260% plus. Again, another ramification for the refinancing of the country going forward and what that means for the balance sheet. Uh, and just something in case you think this is just a Japanese story. I have seen some very intelligent commentators out there who are saying, what happens to Japanese investments overseas in treasuries and other bonds if the JGB suddenly start getting a yield of some description? Yeah, exactly. Money gets repatriated. So that can have big ramifications potentially for bond markets and the appetite of the Japanese for those bond markets on a global basis. Right, uh, we have nine C-suite guests on the show live today. And as I said to you yesterday, I can guarantee you, you're going to learn something from these ladies and gentlemen. So Standard Chartered, first one up, has boosted its divvy and announced a $1 billion share buyback after first half profit jumped 20%. Pre-tax profit expectations in the first six months of the year 
coming in at $3.3 billion. The net interest margin jumped eight basis points in the second quarter to 1.71%. Andy Halford is the CFO of Standard Chartered and joins me now. Nice to see you, Andy. Thank you. Good to be um, here. Well, look, here's a, a nice, easy question to start the day. How would you typify these results? Great. Oh, there's a nice, easy answer. And that was Andy Halford. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, do you want to expand on why they were great? No, we, we have had just a really, really strong quarter and a really strong half year. So as you say, we've been up 20, 30 percent across the board. It has been uh, most of our client groups, most of our markets, most of our product areas. And um, off the back of that, a 50 percent increase in the interim dividend, our second $1 billion buyback and a 10% target now for the roti, which has been in our sights for a very long period of time. Um, and that, hopefully, if we deliver that at the end of the year, will be the first time since probably 2013, I think. So a very, very strong half to the year. Um, roti 10%, 10% plus, is that... I mean, look, I'll be brutally honest with you. That looks like the middle of the range of the numbers I've been seeing this week, speaking to a lot of the ladies and gentlemen in the banking C-suite as well. Do you want to get it higher? Do you have aspirations for a mid-teens kind of level? We do, absolutely. So 10 is not a stopping point. 10 is onwards and upwards. Um, but in the context of a few years ago that we were at zero, 10 is, is a great print. But no, absolutely. We said 11 for the year after, and then we'll build up there afterwards. Yeah, yeah. it's double what I saw from the worst of the bunch this week. I can assure you. <laughs> I, did see a, I think it was a 5.4 from yeah. our German friends. Yeah. So look, um, what is the business mix looking at the moment? Um, where are you seeing the most exciting opportunities? Where do you have the problems? So um, roughly two thirds of our business is with corporate clients and a third is with our consumer retail clients. Um, we have got the bigger profit contribution from the former, but the highest actual uh, return on equity coming from the latter. We have seen very strong growth in some of our Asian markets. So in China is very interesting. We have seen in country about 5% growth in our income in China but the cross-border activity we're doing between China and other countries is up nearly 60%. Six zero. Six zero. So a huge amount of cross-border activity in the Northern Asia region. But that having been said, our Africa Middle East region is now also returning a 15, 16% roti. So this really has been across the board. Um, these numbers have got very few issues sort of sitting anywhere in detail in them. I've asked you this before. What is going on in China? And, and it's, it's very difficult for you to comment on the concerns about China in many ways when you're mm. seeing 60% increase in cross-border trade with China and a 5% <coughs> increase in business domestic as well. You're the first person I've spoken to who isn't in the EV sector who says something positive about China. Okay, well, I'm very glad to be the second person to say something very positive. Um, no, I mean, the, the internal economy obviously is still slow, but we're not a bank for the average Chinese member of the population. Yep. We are very much there, import-export, enabling the renminbi, mm -hmm. doing the things which are of that nature. The government is really wanting to push both of those, so it's, it's, you know, we've got the government sort of on, on our backs, um, and the growth is there. We've got a lot of corporate clients are looking at where they can position themselves Usually, not always in other Asian markets, we are in other Asian markets, so we are just seeing a huge amount of activity. Um, that's fantastic, and, I, and I'm, it's, it's, that's genuinely good news. Yeah. But, but having said that, do you acknowledge or can you see the concerns of others dealing with China? For instance, I mean, you talk about that cross-border. That, that's so, I almost want to get you on with the CEO of Maersk, because <laughs> when I ask them about the trade, yeah. they're saying, yeah, it's, it's really disappointing. Yeah, yeah. Well, I can only talk for our yeah, sector course, yeah, and what yeah. we see, you know. Yeah. So uh, it is very strong at the moment. We're very well positioned. You know, we're a small niche player, but we do our niche well. 
How easy is ease of business doing uh, in, in China at the moment? I, I, I see a lot of spin-offs. I'm speaking to someone later on who's just finding it quite hard to do business in China and they're going to spin off their operations domestic, locally. They're under a little bit of pressure to do so, I believe, as well. But for you, you're getting the green light, business as usual. In fact, business, uh, they, the, the authorities wanted <laughs> to grow, yeah? Yeah, it, it is a huge country and it is a country where you need to know how the country works. And fortunately for a bank, we have been there 160 years without interruption. We have an almost exclusively Chinese management team in the country who are super well connected, do a great job there. So I think this is a country where if you are well connected, you can do very well. We are well connected. We do very well. OK, super duper. What about the buyback? What, what, why? Because we are generating capital now in a way that we have not in the past. We are investing in the business, but there is still spare capital left over. We said at the start of last year that over the three years that we're now in, we'd return $5 billion in total. Mm -hmm. This takes us to just a shade under $4 billion of the $5 billion halfway through that period. So we are both growing the business, generating capital, returning it to our shareholders, and that is helping to improve the overall economics of the business. What's the battle with the shareholders looking like about re-evaluating Standard Chartered as opposed to a lot of other European banks, London listed banks? The only reason I mention that is because I look at your a couple of basic parameters and you look just in the middle of the pack of, uh, of valuations. You're a 0.53 price to book. You're a six times forward PE, which yep. given the growth opportunities <coughs> you've just mentioned to me about China, Sub-Saharan Africa as well, it just isn't reflecting that. So what's the problem with the translation? Um, I think the numbers need to do the talking. I think in recent years we have improved the track record, the predictability. This is our eighth consecutive quarter of top line growth. And I think that the numbers need to do the talking. People need to see the business is back. It's got its mojo back. We're fully in our stride. We print the numbers. When we promise to do things, we deliver on those things. And hopefully over a period of time, and I agree with you, the rating of the bank hopefully should pick up. I mean, it sits there, you know, dare I say, in line with a lot of peers who don't have the same kind of emerging market growth. Um, We'll move on from that because I know I've got about a minute and a half of you and I don't want to go over on my first guest of the day. (laughs) It'd just just be a tailback and we'll finish halfway through street signs. Um, Bill? talking about macroeconomic uh, headwinds today and recent challenges in the banking sector. Can you unpack both of those features for us? Well, the, the growth around the world, as we all know, is patchy. Um, inflation in some parts of the world is still a struggle. Interest rates being high to address that are still a fact of life. But it is patchy. Some parts of the world more affected, some less. Generally, where we operate, actually, we're seeing less inflationary pressures, less issues with interest rates. And therefore, actually, in that sense, you know, we're, we're, we're basically well set, I think. Mm-hmm. And the banking struggles, are we, are we, is that an allusion to what happened in March in the States? Yes, I think so. I, I mean, obviously, first quarter of this year, there were those issues. The sector obviously had to react to those. Like most banks, you know, we have remained very vigilant, but all our core metrics remain very steady through the period. We've kept a very close eye on liquidity, no issues on that front. Um, but nonetheless, whenever there are issues in the sector, obviously, everybody needs to just stop and take a sort of sense check on it. But, um, you know, deposit levels are really stable across our business and, uh, you know, I think genuinely well positioned. Fabulous. Um, I'm, uh, that's the end of my standard charts question. But I do want to ask you just briefly, I mean, you heard me banging on about the BOJ. I think it's huge what they've done today. And I think the ramifications and the ripples globally could be big. Am I overstating this? 
Um, we will see. I mean, when news comes out, there's always a sort of ripple of sort of like, what does it mean? But it is, it is a big statement and it's a big country as well. So we will see over the coming days just sort of what comes off it. But it, it is a big, a big statement. And again, just for, we're not putting you on the record here as such, but just in terms of my, my thoughts about, and they're not my thoughts because I've, they're what I've read extensively about as well, that if actually there is a meaningful uptick in yields on Japanese paper, is there a big repatriation trade here, do you think, potentially? Again, you know, it's just your view. This is not necessarily the view of Standard Charter, but it's just your view. Sure, sure. Do you think there is potentially a problem for actually the attraction of bonds globally uh, and the repatriation of Japanese money? Uh, I think it's very early to reach that yeah. conclusion. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. But I think it's something we need to be cognizant yeah. on. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Nice to see you. All good. well? All right. Okay, All good. good. Well, have Thank a good you. day as well. Thank, Thank you. you. I'll just hold you there for a second, Andy. Uh, Andy Halford, the CFO of Standard Chartered. Well, luckily, Standard Chartered haven't got the same problems over at NatWest uh, because the CEO of Coots, I'm afraid now, has also stepped down. This less than 48 hours after the NatWest boss, as Alison Rose, resigned. Peter Flavel uh, was asked to leave by its parent company, NatWest, as the fallout over the closure of Nigel Farage's accounts continues. NatWest is due to post its half-year results in the next hour. Uh, still ahead on the show, uh, uh, Intel posting a surprise profit in the second quarter, sending shares higher in extended trade. Our chip expert, <laughs> is that his title now? Our chip expert, uh, Arjun Kapal, joins us around the desk in a few moments' time. Plus, fashion M&A. French luxury giant Caring taking a 30% stake in Italian fashion label Valentino. The details of the deal and the company's Q2 numbers coming your way in just a bit. Plus, one more for you. Earnings season continues with numbers from the pharmaceutical giant AstraZeneca. The CFO, uh, Aradana Sarin, will join us around 10 past 8 Central European time. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Welcome back. The Italian president, uh, actually, it's not the Italian president. I don't know who wrote that. It's the prime minister. Georgia Maloney has met President Biden. He's a president in Washington in her first White House visit as the country's leader. The two leaders discussed support for Ukraine and economic cooperation with Maloney, saying relations between the nations should remain strong regardless of the uh, political affiliations of leaders. Biden said he hopes trade relations between the U.S. and Italy can deepen. Compliment you on your very strong support and defending against Russian atrocities, and that's what they are. It's not just a war, but they're Russia's committing atrocities they're focusing on. I don't want to get into it, but you know, and I think Italian people, I want to thank them for supporting you and supporting Ukraine. It makes a big difference. Today, we're going to talk about our deepening economic connections, which fuel more than a hundred billion dollars in trade last year. In my view, there's no reason why that can't increase. 
Uh, the European Central Bank raised interest rates for the ninth straight time on Thursday, taking its benchmark deposit rate up a quarter point to 3.75%, while signalling that eurozone borrowing costs may have peaked. Uh, the central bank did not share any forward guidance, though, but did raise the possibility of a potential pause in rate hikes in September. Well, speaking after the decision, the ECB prime, I mean president, <laughs> sorry, that was just a joke for the team. Uh, Christine Lagarde said the central bank would continue to be data dependent. Some of you may have noticed a slight change of verb. And that is not just random or irrelevant. And I think it's predicated on our determination to be data dependent. So I have said on many occasions that we had ground to cover, or we have more ground to cover. What I'm saying here is that data and our assessment of data will actually tell us whether and how much ground we have to cover. So we are deliberately data dependent. And we have an open mind as to what the decisions will be in September and in subsequent meetings. Because this determination based on data might vary from one, from one month to the other. So we might hike and we might hold. And what is decided in September is not definitive. It may vary from one meeting to the other. The lady couldn't be trying any harder. We may hike. We may hold. It's all days dependent. I think, I think we get the message, Madame Lagarde. Thank you for that. Uh, the US economy picked up pace in the second quarter. These were big numbers. On an annualised basis, GDP ticked up to 2.4%, uh, from 2% in the first quarter. That is way higher than the 1.8% the analysts expected. Yeah, the economists got it so wrong, they're going to give all their money back. Apparently not. Uh, a separate report showed continued tightness in the labour market. Again, weekly jobless claims dropping to the lowest level since February. Now, the latest data points uh, come after the Federal Reserve raised its policy rate by 25 basis points on Wednesday, taking the key lending rate, as you know now, to the highest level in 22 years. Investors' focus now shifts to the PCE inflation print. Out today, expected to show another decline in underlying price pressures. Arabile, it wasn't to be 14 out of 14 for the Dow. But what about the Asian indices? There's a lot going on. Yeah, there is certainly a lot going on, right, Steve? I mean, it's a mixed trading picture across the Asian front, if we were to take a look at it. The Hang Seng, the Shanghai Composite, all of those managing to see some gains, despite the S&P uh, in uh, Australia going down. But it really is about the Nikkei, which is down 1.5%. Of course, it does follow on from that greater flexibility stance coming out of the Bank of Japan, right? Deciding that they are going to have some uh, changes then, tweaks to their uh, yield curve control policy then. 0.5%, both on the negative and the positive side then is where they're letting it fluctuate towards. The 10-year yield actually in Japan moving even past that figure, 0.539. That's the highest since, what was it, September 2014. That's the highest level since then. Even the Japanese yen managed to push a little bit higher against the U.S. dollar. 138 or so, uh, nearly 139 and a bit, in fact, uh, at some stage too. So that Nikkei is certainly one that will be following through across the day's trading. How did that reflect, though? Yesterday's trade in the United States was one that, unfortunately, was close but no cigar, as you noted, Steve. The Dow Jones going down two-thirds of a percent in that trading picture there, unfortunately. It didn't get that 14th uh, straight day of gains. But it is still on pace for what is a third positive week 
in a row. It is up just over 7% as well uh, when one looks at it year to date. Uh, another gain as well on the week for the S&P, even though it dipped similarly to the Dow Jones Industrial Day yesterday. At least 42 names actually reached new, year, uh, new highs uh, in trade yesterday, of course, on the back of some of those earnings reports. The likes of Ford, Intel also reporting some numbers. Uh, quite interesting. Treasuries very quickly then as well. Well, bond yields higher in yesterday's session. It does follow on from the positive data that we got out of the United States. Steve, you pointed towards the GDP numbers there, 2.4% as opposed to the 1.8% initially anticipated, which was very uh, uh, important then for the market. Plus, we also had the Q2 price index data coming out, CPI falling to 2.2% year on year versus the 3% that was actually expected. So very interesting to note on that front. But that is a look at your treasury. Steve. Super duper. Thank you very much for that, Arabile. Right, Intel posted a surprise profit in the second quarter, raised its earnings forecast for the current period on the back of demand for PC and laptop processors. However, chip inventory levels are weighing on demand in the company's data center business. The CEO, Pat Gelsinger, said the unit is also being hit by companies focusing on AI, boosting graphics chip processes, including NVIDIA. Arjun joins us now. Arjun, I've just finished a great book. It was a page turner. It was all about Noyce and Gordon Moore uh, and Arthur rock and the foundation of intel but we're not back to the glory days in these numbers but we're having a little bit of progress in some parts yeah it was a boring quarter steve and that's exactly what the market needed a return to profit for the quarter net income of 1.5 billion versus a loss a year before cost cutting looking to cost about three billion dollars of cost this year exiting several lines of business that really helped profit and that is, is exactly right now what the market needs to see from intel stabilization we heard from them also that uh, there's a bit of a, a rosier outlook on the pc market processor unit uh, ship fell just 12% versus 38% in the last quarter. But even though it was a solid quarter, I think it masks, I'd say, some concerns both in the short term and over the long term. Firstly, in the short term, uh, there are still weaknesses across the board. There's still a, an oversupply of certain chips in the market, processes such as Intel makes uh, mm. at this point in time. They also warn that the data center business is likely going to remain with an oversupply as well. But in the longer term, two key things I'd flag. Firstly, Intel's competitive nature. We heard from Intel management that you know uh, customers are looking for more chips from NVIDIA, GPUs, not the CPUs that Intel makes and the company uh, admits there is some wallet shift over to those sort of chips from the likes of Nvidia and Intel doesn't yet have a competing product in the market though it's planning to release one in the next couple of years. The second one is the foundry business and this has been a, a key part of Pat Gelsinger's push here to bring Intel back to the glory days. Foundry i.e. making chips for other uh, companies that design them as well. Now it's going to be a big challenge to get Intel back to that leading edge where TSMC really dominates and Samsung really is a strong second player at this point behind. So the question is, can they catch up? We've heard some promising uh, signs on the earnings call. The company says it's testing or ramping up testing of some of these cutting edge chips and, quote, it's mastered EUV technology, extreme ultraviolet technology. Because that was in my book as well. That was, that's they, Intel said they've mastered EUV. And if that is true, if that's true, that is they take on a big Dutch player that we uh, talk about a lot. Not in terms of uh, making the EUV, they've mastered right. how to use it, and ah, that is key. Okay, so yep. that, that's so, that's so a positive. ASML for... will still be making the EUV, yep. but Intel have worked out a way that these very expensive, cutting-edge, high-tech chips can be used in their production process. Absolutely, and wow. so this is 
positive in some senses for ASML because yeah. this is a customer now that's yeah. going to be buying a lot of the machines. But secondly, if uh, Intel has mastered how to use these machines... Does that mean Moore's Law is back on track? It's back on track. Well, yeah. even quicker, the, it seems. The amount of capacity in an integrated circuit can double every couple of years. It was the original uh, Moore's Law. He was one of the founders, of course. I just love all this stuff now. Now I'm uh, learning. I'm catching you up. Uh, but, but, but the point <laughs> is, because you've got a lot of commoditized CPU mm. circuitry, and then you've got the GPUs, which NVIDIA's cleaning up on at the moment, but they're saying are creating a category where they can actually get more value, less commoditized products out of their core chips. Absolutely, and they can come down those those nodes you were mentioning down yeah. down to what uh, TSMC is talking about now, which is such as three nanometer, which is referring to sort of the size and the amount of transistors on these chips. And yeah. uh, this is currently where we're at, at the moment. And Intel really needs to sort of it's not just it's playing catch up, but it needs to leapfrog. And that's where the challenge, I think, for Intel is. It needs to bring back uh, the customers to its foundry business. It says it needs to, uh, it admits really, it, it needs to catch up on a few areas. And that's really where the focus is. That's going to take a lot of capex. Uh, and I say for, in terms of long term for Intel, this is where the focus is. But this is also uh, where the question mark lies about whether they can indeed catch up to the likes of TSMC. I love Samsung it. Well. I love it. Do you know what? Not only do I enjoy talking to you always about cricket and all that stuff, but I'm just loving learning what you're educating. That's why they've called you the chip correspondent really yeah we're doing a big piece on skinny fries next <laughs> uh, oh, my favorite. I know, me too yeah, who doesn't love it. with one of your local jake's burgers yeah <sighs> great place <laughs> it's not a public company we can talk about it yeah seven kings uh, right okay <laughs> the french preliminary second quarter gdp up 0.5 percent quarter on quarter these are big numbers by the way they, uh, well, actually, no, hang on a second. I've just seen the next one. <laughs> OK, so the second quarter GDP figure out of France looks good. OK, this is the first flush. Uh, blush. 0.5% uh, up quarter on quarter. The forecast was up 0.1% versus up 0.1% revised in the first quarter. But the second quarter household spending was down 0.4% quarter on quarter. Business investment was a big fat zero. Uh, domestic demand ex inventories contributed negative 0.1% to GDP, but foreign trade up 0.7 percentage points, inventories down 0.1. But I'll, I'll just take the headline figure. That is a really good number out of France on its own. There's nuances within it, up 0.5 percent quarter on quarter. To me, that looks jolly solid. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.